declare, before they spring into being, I will announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ian, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. Um, just let me add my own word of thanks to all of you for uh, laboring so faithfully together yesterday to make the wedding such a very happy occasion. And as I was thinking about it, it was rather a vivid illustration, wasn't it, of what we've been learning in our series, Why Church? Uh, if you think about it, there were lots of connections between what you saw with your eyes yesterday and what we've been learning over the last few weeks together. Then, uh, just to say, on Thursday this week, we have the GWC graduation. Uh, that takes place at 2 o'clock at St. James Church in Kenilworth. And Semi is going to be graduating with honors, returning next year to do his master's, but uh, that's that. And, and Trimore is graduating. And um, who have I forgotten? I've forgotten somebody. Ah, oh, gift. How could I forget you? Yeah, how could I forget you? Yes, well, of course, he's graduating. Two o'clock is the kickoff. Um, I just, just give you a heads up. It, if, if it's a hot day, St. James Church is roasting, so don't uh, so travel light, I would suggest. In your seats by, I think, quarter to two. Uh, then, um, as um, Sylvester's already said, we're starting this new series in Isaiah. I need to tell you that next Sunday I'm in Johannesburg uh, preaching at uh, Privileges wedding and uh, the professor will be here in the pulpit so you will be in very safe hands and then the last thing to say is that it's our monthly prayer meeting straight after the service so grab a cup of coffee and something to nibble and then we'll get on with our monthly prayer meeting but for now please will you have isaiah 42 open in front of you and um, i will lead us in a word of prayer Well, our loving Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take my words this morning in all their imperfection and that you would use them to unfold the written word and so lead us to the living word, the Lord Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's um, a famous place, I think, in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to an ordinary group of men and women, pretty much like us, and he places a rather surprising challenge in front of them. Uh, Jesus has noticed that these people are experts at interpreting weather patterns. Uh, so they've learned from careful observation that a certain cloud formation is a sure sign that rain is coming. And when the south wind blows, well, they know it's time to put on the sunscreen and wear a hat because it's going to be extremely hot. So rather like many people in Cape Town today, they were expert meteorologists. But then Jesus says to them, so you know how to interpret the weather. How is it you don't know how to interpret the present time? Seems Jesus is rather surprised they can't do that. Uh, Jesus clearly thinks they have all the information they need to be able to interpret the times correctly, 
but they are consistently miles off target. Now, with Christmas just around the corner, I think it's reasonable to ask, are we doing any better? We might be experts at interpreting the political outlook or the economy. What about Christmas? How are we doing with that? Do we know what Christmas is really all about? Uh, I guess for some people, Christmas is just another public holiday. As far as they're concerned, it's all about time off work. For many people, Christmas, of course, is a sad time. It's a time of loneliness, uh, perhaps or going without certain things. And maybe for them, Christmas brings back all kinds of painful memories of family squabbles. Of course, for many people, Christmas is actually about no more than Santa Claus and presents. Nothing wrong with giving and receiving presents. And yet, of course, we know, don't we, that so often it gets completely out of control. And uh, all the retailers know with very little effort on their part, they can persuade us to spend money we don't have on things we don't actually need. So if Jesus came to Cape Town this Christmas, I think he might very well say, how is it you don't know how to interpret the present time? How is it you don't know how to interpret Christmas? So our goal in this short series of four studies is to put Christmas in its proper context so that we understand it better ourselves and can explain it more convincingly to other people. Uh, to help us, we're doing something unusual. At this time of the year, we would normally be reading the account of the birth of Jesus in one of the Gospels. That is a terrific thing to do. But this year, we're going back 700 years before the birth of Jesus to the book of Isaiah. That, of course, means there's no manger, uh, there are no shepherds in the fields, there are no wise men from the east, there are no angels. But what we find in Isaiah, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible, is God's interpretation of Christmas. Because Isaiah gives us Christmas without frills, or if you prefer, Christmas unplugged. How does Isaiah do that? Well, there are lots of different places we could turn to, but uh, for this series, we've chosen four poems, four songs from the second half of the book, and they all have something very special in common. They're all talking about someone who's called, quite simply, the servant. Uh, a bit later, we'll see that the New Testament insists that Isaiah's servant is the Lord Jesus. And these songs in Isaiah are very special because they tell us things about Jesus that are not always obvious to us from the gospel record. Now, one of the great surprises in this first song is the context in which the servant is introduced. And we need to get the context clear in our minds if we're ever going to understand what the servant's mission is really all about. 
And in order to do that, we need to cast our eye back to Isaiah 41, the chapter before the one Ian just read for us. Isaiah 41, the setting is a courtroom. And in the courtroom, God has summoned all the nations of the earth. In other words, the entire human race is on trial. What is the charge? Verse 21, chapter 41, verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's. Now what that's saying is that God looks at the entire human race and he sees men and women worshipping idols. And we need to pause on that because today, as soon as we come across the word idol, I guess most of us think of a little statue, a sort of man-made god, and we say to ourselves, well, I don't worship statues. Um, idolatry is not my struggle, and we switch off. That, my dear friends, would be a disastrous mistake. Let me tell you why. Uh, David Foster Wallace was a highly respected and a much-loved American uh, novelist. Very sadly, he committed suicide while he was still in his 40s. He wasn't actually a Christian, but a few weeks before he died, he gave a speech to a group of university students in which he exposed idolatry in its 21st century clothing. And here's what he said, fascinating this. Quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. That's an interesting statement, isn't it, from a non-Christian. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the only compelling reason for maybe choosing a spiritual god like Jesus or Allah or Yahweh is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough and you'll never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual attraction, you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need more and more power over others just to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect for being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he makes this fascinating statement. He says, but the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. In other words, we're not aware of them. They're default settings. That's a brilliant quote. I've put it back on, on the back of the question sheet for you this week. Do have a look at it. 
That, I think, is right on the button. And what makes these remarks so striking and penetrating is that they come on the lips of a non-Christian. Because what he says is exactly what the Bible says. Without even realizing it, we all worship something. But unless that something is the one true God, what we worship will, in the end, destroy us. Now, friends, that is our problem today, and that is the problem that the servant of the Lord came to fix. Uh, why do I say that? How do we know that? Um, Alec Matir is one of the most respected scholars on the book of Isaiah, and he points out that in the Hebrew text, there is just one word that connects the problem in chapter 41 to the coming of the servant in chapter 42. If you want to know what the Hebrew word is, ask the professor afterwards. Unfortunately, our NIV translation doesn't actually help us, but the word that he's talking about is usually translated by the English word behold, or as we would say, look at this. It actually appears in three places. And if I were sort of trying to highlight that word for us in the text of our English Bibles, this is what would happen. Chapter 41, verse 24 would read like this. Look at this, worthless idols. And then verse 29 of chapter 41 would read, look at this, confused idol worshippers. Chapter 42, verse 1, look at this, my servant. And the point is, you see, that the servant is introduced to show us who we are meant to be worshipping and why. And as we work through these four songs, I hope we're going to see with remarkable clarity why that is so. Uh, this first song celebrates three of the servant's qualities, and uh, because it is a song, um, it invites us to celebrate these qualities as well. And so as we look a bit more carefully at uh, Isaiah 42, I want to try and preserve the, the feel, the atmosphere of the song and celebrate these qualities as exclamations, each one beginning with the word, look. Here's the first one. Look how delightful he is. Look how delightful he is. There's something actually really mysterious about the way the servant is introduced. Uh, normally, whenever the Bible introduces an important character, uh, it will tell us his name, it'll tell us where he came from, and it will usually give us his family tree, his ancestors going back several generations. But here, even though the servant is going to be doing something, not just for Israel, but for the nations, for the whole world, there's no family tree, no information about where he came from. And if we are careful Bible readers, that should strike us as seriously odd. But then the, the mystery deepens even more as we notice that on the one hand, it seems that the servant 
is already present. Just look at verse 1 again. Here is my servant. He's here. He's alive. And yet, his ministry quite clearly lies in the future because seven times in verses 1 to 4, we're told what the servant will do in the future. See, when Isaiah was writing, the servant wasn't, sorry, was alive, but he hadn't actually started his ministry. So at this particular point, the servant has no name, he's got no family tree, he's got no track record, but God says, he is my chosen one, in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him. Who on earth is he? Who can possibly be so special that God would talk about him in such a special way? Well, no one in the Bible fits this description until we come to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So please keep one finger in Isaiah 42 and travel with me to Mark, chapter 1. These verses are very familiar to you. Uh, But I want you to look at them this morning in the light of what we've just read in Isaiah 42. And as we do so, won't you please remember that the events in Mark's Gospel took place 700 years after Isaiah was writing. Come with me to verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, that last little phrase, with you I am well pleased, is a direct quotation from the original text of Isaiah 42. All of the commentators, without exception, agree on that point. So, in our passage this morning, God promises in Isaiah 42 that he's going to send a servant who will be anointed with God's Spirit and God will be delighted with him. And 700 years later, as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, that promise, that prediction, is fulfilled perfectly. The question we might ask is, well, okay, why? Why is God so delighted with him? What is the servant going to do that uh, will cause God to be so very pleased with him. Turn back to Isaiah 42. Very important, because three times we're told what the servant's mission is going to be. It's there in verse 1. He will bring justice to the nations. It's there again in verse 3. He will bring forth justice... And in case we weren't paying attention, it's there again in verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. 
Now, friends, whenever the Bible says something three times, it's an alarm call, and it's saying to us, think very carefully about this. Of course, the problem we have is that uh, you and I are used to the idea that uh, justice is what you get when the judge in court judges rightly. doesn't happen very often in South Africa. But when it does, we would say justice has been done. Well, yes, but not quite. Because the word justice in the original has got a very, very specific meaning. It's referring to the official pronouncement of a king or a judge, and it carries his absolute authority. Stay closely with me here. So in Isaiah 42, justice is God's pronouncement explaining everything that's wrong with our world and telling us what God is going to do to put things right. So I think a helpful way to think about it is it's the last word on the situation. It's not an opinion, it's reality. So just to illustrate the point, think for a moment of the third umpire in a cricket match. You know, there are the umps on the field uh, doing their best to make a right judgment. But uh, whenever the decision is uncertain, what do they do? They go upstairs. And it's the replay of the video in slow motion that provides the vital evidence needed to make a decision based on truth, to make a judgment based on reality. And uh, the decision that follows is righteous and it is just because it is made on the basis of how things really are. Now that is a picture of the justice that the servant will take to the nations. It's God's view of the world based on how things really are rather than on our human assessment. And it explains that the world is in the mess that it is because we've turned away from God and we've been worshiping all the wrong things. And the servant's job is to warn the nations to turn back to God before it is too late. If Jesus hadn't done that, we would have no hope. We'd still be kind of floundering around in the darkness of our own opinions. But Jesus has done it, and God is delighted with him. So that's the first thing this morning. Look how delightful he is. Second thing, look how unusual he is. I think it's true to say that we are used to leaders achieving their objectives by the exercise of dynamic power and authority. Sometimes they do it ruthlessly through oppression and through brute force. We see that today, don't we, in places like Zim, uh, Russia, and so on. Often it's a bit more subtle than that. Um, These days we live in the age of the spin doctor, and the spin doctor is highly skilled at controlling public opinion through the media media, and uh, enacting legislation that limits what the newspapers can write about. Now, that's how leaders lead today, which makes the description of the servant in verses 2 to 4 
very unusual. Uh, in those verses, there are seven negative statements which make a striking contrast with the normal methods used by leaders to impose their program. Two qualities stand out. First, there is the servant's quietness. Let's have a look at verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. The servant will establish God's justice quietly. He won't draw undue attention to himself. Actually, that verb, cry out, means literally to shout the other person down. He's not going to do that. You know, shouting the other person down is what happens, isn't it, when a politician is interviewed on television or Cape Talk. They get asked a tricky question. Uh, they don't want to answer it, so what do they do? They shut the questioner down. They shout over him. But the servant won't be doing that. And there'll be no noisy, high-profile propaganda campaign with rallies in the streets. That's not the way Jesus will do things. Instead, he's going to have a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. Is that what happened? Well, let's look. At last cross-reference today, please turn quickly to Matthew chapter 12. Gospel of Matthew this time, chapter 12. While you're turning there, let me give you the context. The context here is that the religious people are finding Jesus way too threatening. Uh, they're plotting to kill him. What does Jesus do? Matthew 12, verse 15 Verse 15, can we all see it in our Bibles? Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Now look at this carefully, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then you'll notice that Matthew quotes our passage in Isaiah 42. What's he saying? Matthew is saying that Jesus is Isaiah's servant. He doesn't fight back. There's no retaliation. He doesn't deny himself. He never de denied his own claim. But there's no public debate. You know, there's no big discussion. No fuss. Jesus withdraws. He heals the sick. And he says, don't go telling people. So there's a quietness, there's a hiddenness about Jesus, which I think is a, a tremendous rebuke, isn't it, to those of us who try to promote ourselves and to push ourselves forward. Uh, John Calvin was one of the, the greats, wasn't he, of the Protestant Reformation. And during his lifetime, uh, people flocked to listen to him and uh, it's fair to say, I think, that Calvin's writings on the doctrine of God have never been improved on. But uh, Calvin never promoted himself. Uh, when he died, he didn't want anything to distinguish his own burial from any other citizen in Geneva, which was where he lived. Uh, he simply wanted to be sewn up in a plain white shroud and then put in a, a plain pine box, nothing fancy. And at the grave, he gave instruction 
that there was to be neither song nor words, and uh, his wishes were carried out to the letter. Uh, the thing, of course, he couldn't control was the huge multitude that silently followed the coffin to its final resting place. But Calvin was so modest uh, that he didn't even want a tombstone. And uh, so a few weeks after he was buried, a few foreign students came to Geneva, and they wanted to see where the great man had been buried. But when they were taken out to the cemetery, they couldn't actually identify Calvin's grave from all the other mounds of dirt. Now, that is the kind of humility and quietness that we see in Isaiah's servant in chapter 42. Notice, secondly, back in that chapter, please come back there if you're not there in it yet, notice, secondly, not only his quietness, but his gentleness. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know, the imagery here is so beautiful, isn't it? The idea is that to the servant, no one is useless. No one is ever beyond his help, however bruised, however crushed they might feel. Other people might consider them to be burnt out with nothing really to offer. That's not how Jesus sees them. And doesn't that speak to us? It certainly speaks to me. You know, perhaps we're experts at putting a brave face on things when all the time on the inside we're dying. But with a servant, we are perfectly safe. Surely an immensely comforting thought, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't despise us for our weakness or mock us for our fear, and he never crushes us in our times of despair. And actually, his empathy is far more than just comforting words, because verse 4 tells us he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. Now, the professor's going to have to do some work for you all this week to explain this, but the word falter comes there from the same root as the word snuff out. And the word discouraged is the same word translated bruised in verse 3. So what verse 4 is saying is that in fulfilling his mission, the servant himself will experience the deepest human discouragements, just like you and me. The things that bruise us and threaten to extinguish us, he's going to suffer that. But he will succeed in his mission. So his gentleness with us comes from knowing precisely what we're feeling in our own darkest moments. And you see, friends, if that's how Jesus treats us, isn't that how we should be with one another? You know, many people, I think, in church, they come to church, they have heartaches that the rest of us know absolutely nothing about. They're fearful, fragile, not sure how they're even going to make it through to Christmas. But if we say that this is a church where Jesus is Lord, well, our way with each other must be the servant's way, mustn't it? Loving, 
kind, very gentle. Isn't that what we want for this church? Look how unusual he is. Thirdly and lastly, look how essential he is. Now, I need to tell you here that one of the characteristics of each of the four servant songs is that every song or poem is followed by a divine commentary, commentary, as it were, that tells us from heaven how the servant will accomplish his mission. So in our passage, the song is verses 1 to 4, which talks about the servant in the third person, he, okay? It's all about what he will do. But then in verses 5 to 9, God addresses the servant directly as you. Can you spot that in the change in your text? And these verses explain how God will enable the servant to complete his task. So look at verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you, the servant, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, what I want you to see is that God's commission to the servant is all about light. Verse 6. God will make the servant a light for the Gentiles. Verse 7, the servant will open eyes that are blind. Again, verse 7, he will release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now that takes us all the way back to where we started this morning because by nature, all of us are living in spiritual darkness, idolatry. And left to ourselves, we're incapable of seeing the world, our lives, and our destiny as it really is. We need illumination from outside ourselves. We're not going to get there on our own. Now, friends, that is what the servant came to do. He came to bring us light from God. He came to open our eyes so that we might see we've been worshipping all the wrong things. And he came so that we might see clearly the glory of the one true God in the face of Jesus Christ and worship him alone. Now, friends, that is what the servant came to do. That is our calling as his church. And that is what Christmas is really all about about. Will you bow with me as I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to bring the light of your truth into our dark world. 
We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to embrace this truth by enthroning Jesus as King and Lord in every area of our lives. Please help us to do that from this day forwards, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen.